Yes, just keeps giving you reminders of how ignorant you are. I remember one time we were uh, driving. I, I was at a, it was 19, no, it was, uh, it was 2000. And uh, Georgia was playing Florida. And I went with a bunch of friends to Jacksonville. I was the student pastor at Calvary. And it wasn't wise because I had to be back in Scottsboro for Sunday morning. Well, the game was at 3.30 in Jacksonville, and uh, we got done with the game, and we all had different seats and because uh, we couldn't find tickets. We found tickets, and thankfully at this game, I was not arrested, but uh, I was able to get in. <laughs> There's a backstory for those that don't know that story, but I, uh, I made it to the seats, and we got back, and we were going to meet up at the car. Well, I was nervous because that's a long drive from Scottsboro. And so it got to be 7.30, it got to be 8 o'clock, and people weren't coming back to the car. And I didn't know what was going on. It got ridiculous. 8.30, I'm like, what are we going to do? Well, they get back at like 8.30. It's like late, 8 o'clock. Well, we get in the car, and uh, one of my buddies is driving, and I'm in the uh, front, and I'm thinking, well, i at least sleep right now. I'll sleep, and I can go all night. Well, I'm sleeping, and I wake up. And have you ever had that sick feeling when you're driving somewhere that's many hours away? that you're just, something's just not right. Well, I looked, and I was like, this, I don't think this is right. And I sat there forever. And, I, and, and all of a sudden, I saw a sign that had the distance to Daytona Beach. And I said, what are you doing? What are you thinking? I said, you're going the wrong way. You're going south. And he goes, oh, I'm so sorry. And then at that point, it was like adding on that time just to get back where we started. Well, I was so mad. And, and, like, we were all so mad at, uh, at Brian. And, and we, we looked at each other. It's, it's, when you get into the Word of God, one of the biggest exhortations, one of the greatest challenges to the Christian is to guard against error. To guard against error. This morning, we're going to look at a passage, and you may be thinking, I don't understand why you're preaching in Hebrews, because today's Palm Sunday. This is Holy Week. You should break and go somewhere else. But I think what you're going to find is a remarkable connection as we reflect on the meaning of this week on the calendar. Guarding against error. Guarding against error. What we're going to do this morning is just look at three instructions to guard against error. Three instructions to guard against error as we walk through this passage. And we're going to read verse 7 down to verse 14. 7 down to verse 14. If you got your Bibles, let's read that together. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7 down to verse 14. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin, are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. 
Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. As we look at this passage this morning, we're going to start out. What he's going to do is he's going to call them to remember their leaders. He's going to call them to look to Christ, and he's kind of going to call them to not be led astray. And they're all going to tie together. In the very beginning, he says, remember your leaders. Remember leaders here. And when we look at this, we read verse 7, and I want you to see how he sets this up. He says in verse 7, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He's saying, look, I want you to call to mind, bear in mind those who have taught you, those who've spoke to you the word of God. And, and, he, and he ties in this comprehensive view of a leader here, that a leader biblically is one who not only teaches the word of God, but models it, models the word of God. It would be consistent with the way in which we look at those who are called to teach in the New Testament are defined as elders and they are to be blameless. They are to be those who teach in their lives while not perfect because First John says, if we say that we have no sin, we lie and the truth is not in us. But what he speaks of here is not a perfection, but a predictability. They're men who are known to struggle, but they're men by the grace of God who exemplify what they teach. And he says, look, I want you to remember them. And I want you to think about this. When you think about guarding against error, he says, look, remember those who have spoken the word to you. Remember Ephesians speaks about how God gave gifted men to the church. He gave gifts to the church. And one of the gifts is those that he has gifted to teach. And the teachers are not anything to praise. The teachers are simply vessels because the spiritual gift they exercise was given by God. It wasn't something that they came up with. It wasn't their skill. It wasn't their you know, their talent, it, it was a gift. So this is going to be glory to God ultimately. But he says, look, as you think about error and you think about the danger that false teachers present, here the author of Hebrews is writing to a church and the people are tempted to go back to Judaism. They're tempted to go back to Judaism and there's many different reasons why we have seen over these 13 chapters. Their property has been plundered. There's a possibility of their martyrdom. And, and, and one of the temptations seems to be that they are being allured by the idea that if you go to Judaism, it's a much better system. Look at what we offer. Look at all the, all that the gospel of Jesus Christ does not give you. And the author of Hebrews throughout the letter has been showing the supremacy of Jesus. And he says, look, remember your leaders, they have taught you the word of God. So remember them. He says, consider. It just means to consider attentively, to contemplate. There's so many commands in this section, and there's also so many present tense verbs where he basically is like, let this be a pattern of your life. And, and there, there's even one place where it, it gives a sense that this is something that they hadn't been doing, and they better start doing it if they're going to be guarded against such error. Consider their way, 
the outcome of their way of life, the outcome of their way of life, and imitate their faith. When we look at this idea of imitating their faith, we see Paul say this. Um, he says in 2 Thessalonians, for you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you. In 2 Thessalonians, two verses later, he says, it was not because we do not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. In 3 John, beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God, and whoever does evil has not seen God. Imitate their faith. Throughout the book, we've seen the importance of faith, and we've been reminded that without faith, it's impossible to please God. And so it's important that leaders in the church model faith. But we see here not only this call to, to imitate, consider, remember, but under this first point of remembering their leaders, I want you to see something here. Once again, we see the importance of the church. And, and one of the challenges is that we happen to be Christians who are living in a time when the church is devalued. And so it's important. And again, I told you this last time, but the challenge at this point is to try to convey to you that this is not pastoral speak because the pastor is trying to drum up more church attendance. This is simply trying to be a faithful steward of the word of God. And one thing I've learned in my own life over the last 20 years is how much that I, without even realizing it, was devaluing the assembly of the people of God. A lot of people, if you say, do you go to church, they're thinking in their mind, do I listen to a preacher occasionally? And, and, and by the grace of God, we have access to more biblical theological information than anyone has had in history. It's phenomenal. We have, we have no excuse not to have a great understanding of orthodoxy. It's like if, if in the day's time that we live, and this is not to push anybody down, this is to encourage you by the grace of God. As long as God's grace, as one of my favorite preachers said, as long as God's grace is still operative, human failure is never final. So don't be felt beat up by this. But there's no excuse to live as a Christian in today's world and not have a clear sense of theology. You have every tool you could possibly imagine. You have apps on your phone that if the reformers knew what you have on your phone, they would just be in awe. They wouldn't be able to believe it all the resources you can get off your iPhone with the scripture. But what I want you to see is a lot of times when we think about, do you go to church? People only think about consuming sermons. They say, oh, I don't go to church. I listen to such and such, such and such, and such and such. And I've got this podcast, this podcast, this podcast. I'm good. That's what they think of when it comes to ecclesiology. They think of such a low view of the church that literally they would regard cyber church no different than physical church. I don't know if you've been able to see the, the value of assembling together, but I don't know about you, but man, it's hard to do church online. And I'll be honest with you, the times that I've been at the beach and I've turned on online church, the one thing I realized really quick is that this is not the assembly because I'm sitting on a couch somewhere with a drink in my hand, and I'm trying to get into the feel of being with God's people, but what we have together can never be replaced apart from it. 
I tell you, when we look at this, notice what he's doing. One of the greatest safeguards against error is not only the people of God gathering together, hearing the spoken word, but the people of God underneath qualified leaders, the people of God underneath leaders who are responsible to care for the people. Do you see this? It's not just this thing that happens. If we see our Christianity simply as individuals who are seeking to have a devotional life to follow Christ, we will never understand the New Testament call to Christianity. The the church is formative in our Christian development. And he says here, he says, look, Understand here, understand the importance. Remember your leaders. You see, it wasn't somebody on a screen that he was watching. It was people that they not only heard in person, but they actually watched the way they lived. You ever noticed that? It's hard to do that on podcast. It's hard to be around a shepherd where you can actually watch their manner of life. And what the author here is saying is, is look, don't forget what you've been taught. Not only don't forget what you've been taught, but, but consider it, imitate it, follow it. There's accountability in the church. There's opportunity to fulfill the one another's in the church. By God's grace, there's, there's, there's biblical leaders in a church. By God's grace, there, there needs to be shepherd care in the church. By God's grace, there's a purity within the church. By God's grace, there's a striving with one mind together. But wow, what, what a call for faithful leadership, you know? I tell you, this is humbling because you look at this and you see that they are to remember the people that taught them the word, but it didn't stop with teaching. You know, Ezra in the book of Ezra in the Old Testament He sought to what? To study, to practice, and to teach the word of God. Wow, it's easy to forget that as a teacher. A lot of times I think about teaching the word of God, but I I neglect practicing the word of God. And see, we we see this, this picture of God's grace molding his people through those that once were condemned and alienated by God who've been brought into his family, and now the word is changing their life. Consider their life. Consider the outcome of their way. And man, what a, what a challenge this morning that we as leaders need to pray for you, and we beg you to pray for us because we need each other. We need each other in the body of Christ. But you know, we not only see remember your leaders, but we see look to Christ. When we get into verse 8, a lot of people think that this is just a random statement by the author. And and I pray you would see that the Holy Spirit doesn't speak in random ways. It's not just like he got, you know, he stopped here and thought, I'll just say something about the nature of Jesus. This is applicable to what he's writing here. And he says in verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Now, I want you to think about the message of this book. Christ is supreme. He's supreme over angels. He's supreme over man. Supreme over Moses, Joshua, the priesthood, the tabernacle, the temple, on and on and on. There are so many categories we've seen over the last year. But I want you to see that he wants them to recognize that in a culture that they were dealing with, and I wonder if it comforts you today, they were in a culture. Now think about how close they were to the time of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
and they were already being tempted as the church to swerve off and to wonder because of the progressiveness of the culture and even in the way they thought religiously. And yet he reminds them in the midst of that, look, the one thing you can be sure of in the midst of all the changes that go on in your world and all the changes that go on with doctrine, all the changes that go on with church people, you can be reminded that Jesus Christ, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. His word is sure. I was looking at some quotes about this, you know, and just reading about the, if, if we were going to talk about the fact that God does not change the doctrine, and don't be thrown by this, because this is, these words get confusing. And there's many times I tell you, the only reason I can tell you what it means is I've studied it, and I've learned so much as I've gone through this book. So if, uh, don't, don't be intimidated by the word, but immutability, immutability, all it means is, is that God does not change. If we look at some passages like Malachi 3, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Look at Psalm in these three verses, Psalm 102. Of old, you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. Have you noticed your closet lately? Remember some of those clothes you got in your closet that you're thinking about just, you know, trashing or donating or something? They were pretty impressive at one point. Isn't that depressing when you look at your clothes in the closet and you go, you know what? I really like that shirt. I hate it now. You look at it and you go, you know, that shirt cost X amount of dollars and that shirt is falling apart. And that's the way we are. It's sort of the way when you look in the mirror, the older you get, you're falling apart. And you look at it, but the one thing that brings hope and brings substance is that God doesn't change. And isn't that comforting? Because there's so many things changing constantly in our world. But what we need as Christians is an understanding and a foundation that God does not change. His character is immutable. He doesn't change. We could go to passage after passage to illustrate this. One more, James 1. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights. And notice what it says about the Father of lights. Now, notice that there is perfect harmony and unity within the Godhead. So even in a passage where we're looking at that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, we have to understand this is reflective of the Trinity, of God the Father as well. And what does he say? With whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said. Jesus Christ is the same today as he was yesterday in the teachings of his word. They tell us in these times that the improvements of the age require improvements in theology. You see, Christ doesn't change. And what did he reveal in his word in the letter of Jude, beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was what? Once for all, delivered to the saints. I told you 
this in a sermon recently, but I want to remind you because it's, it's like hopeful to all of us about just guarding the truth. And remember, what is the nature of the truth that we guard? For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And I'll tell you something. If you compromise the doctrine of Scripture, it's only a matter of time before you take the long drift into progressivism and that long slide of progressivism, it ends in the pit of atheism. Because the moment you've left the sufficiency of the scripture, your opinion of what God might be trying to say and my opinion of what God intended to say is all relative to what we feel. But God does not change. He's immutable and he's given us his sure word. And that's why Paul in Colossians, you know, he's writing to the people in Colossae, and he says, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So when we think about this idea of guarding against error, it's not only going to be remembering faithful leaders, but it's going to involve looking to Christ. We got to look to Christ and be reminded of what he, who he is, reminded the nature of who he is, and reminded of his word, the final instruction this morning. Don't be led astray. Now, I want to read this with you because this is uh, what I typically try to do when I'm studying is I try to identify questions. And I had a lot of questions on this passage. I found, I think, more questions than observations when I did my first walkthrough. I mean, I had tons of questions. So you look at this and you go, okay, wait a minute. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. Now, I'm going to walk through this. But let's look at it at 30,000 feet. When I say the phrase, not by foods, who is he writing to? Jewish Christians. Have you, when you get around a religious Jew, is there an emphasis on food? Absolutely. I mean, 2,000 years after this was written, I flew to Tel Aviv on a plane from LaGuardia Airport, and I was on the flight with about 150 uh, Hasidic Jews on their way to a bar mitzvah, and I got an education on how they viewed that which was kosher and that which was biblical. And every time I got the non-kosher option on the menu, I was looked at with disdain. Now, why is that? Because the religious dietary laws of the Old Testament. And what appears to be happening here is that they were dealing with something similar. Because he says something, he says, look, don't, don't swerve. In verse 9, he says, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. And then he says, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods. And what else did we learn about the foods? They, the food had been devoted by many people. They had devoted themselves to the foods, and they had not been beneficial to them. Now, let's unpack this a little bit. Don't be led astray by diverse and strange teachings. The word diverse means multicolored. Uh, diverse teachings, there's a lot of teaching out there. You notice that? There's a lot of opinions about things. 
That's why it's important that teachers don't give us their opinions, but teachers stand on what God has revealed. The last thing you need from me is for me to get up every week and tell you what I think you ought to hear. You need to hear God's word. And the most faithful way I believe I can do that is to try to stay in the flow of a book or a letter because the Holy Spirit has spoken through his truth. You see, there's a lot of diversity in teaching, multicolored teaching, and there's strange teachings. I will amen that. Strange teachings. It's just like you think. Strange, if you said uh, a stranger comes up, uh, somebody different, somebody that you're not used to, whatever. It, it, it's speaking of something unknown as coming from another country. So think about strange, novel, unheard of, causing surprise and wonder when people hear it. Strange teachings. And then he says, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. Do you realize how many false gospels there are? I was reading, there was a guy named Trevin Wax who wrote a book on uh, false gospels. And, and often when you see lists that people put out about false gospels, there's a similar list. I found an article and it suggested there's like the religion gospel that misses the cross and misses Jesus. There's the moralism gospel where you go to church and you think the main thing God wants from you is to be a better person that you need to be better. And so when you hear the commands of Scripture, you don't hear those commands rooted in the gospel, rooted in the cross. You just simply leave thinking about how much better of a parent and how much better of an individual you need to be, but you mishear the gospel. Another one is uh, the prosperity gospel. We've hammered that one away for a while. Uh, so I don't even, it, you know, the idea that God's main intent is for me to be healthy, wealthy, and, and that's the intent. So like, it's like everything is skewed into those two ideas. The self-help gospel, it's like uh, you're uh, a lot of people, it's therapeutic gospel, a self-help gospel. A lot of people are like, I don't really want Christ, but if Jesus will help me get off drugs, that's great. Let's do it. That's not the gospel. That's just using another form of AA that might not even be rooted in the word of God. It might just be an attempt to get a benefit out of something that the gospel says. But So there's all these kind of diversity of teachings. There's all kinds of gospels. There's people that literally, they only focus on the social justice gospel. They only focus on liberation theology. It's like the gospel is simply doing good things for others and they miss the cross. There's all of these types of diversities and strange teachings within America. And if we go back over 2,000 years, there's so many more we could find and list. But this culture, right before, around 65, 67 AD, they're dealing with a temptation, it appears, to abandon the Christian gospel and to focus on something else related to law-keeping. Are we grounded? I mentioned it earlier, but um, we need to be not only with God's people, but I'll tell you, how are you going to guard yourself against strange and diverse teachings if you don't know the word of God? I want to encourage you with this. I want to encourage you. The, the word of God, theology is not just reserved for pastors and seminarians. Theology is what you believe about the Bible. And so every person in here this morning has a theological system. Think about that. Every one of you have a theology. It's important that you understand what this is. Have you ever noticed how if you love something, you know the terminology? 
I'm not a big golfer, but I like it. I'm terrible, but I like, I like watching the Masters just like anybody else. But I don't, you know, I didn't play golf all my life, so there's a lot of golf terminology. But have you ever noticed that when you talk to somebody who loves golf, they know the terminology? Have you ever noticed how if you talk to someone who loves basketball, they know the terminology? I mean, even if you talk to somebody who loves sewing, there's terminology. There's terminology. If you, if you talk to someone who loves to cook, if you talk to somebody, and have you ever noticed this? Now think with me, think with me, think with me. Have you been in this situation, moms and dads, or if you're older than uh, 35, uh, 40, 45, uh, 50, and, and there's a younger person around, and you're like, I don't know what's going on with my iPhone. It's doing something weird. And immediately, some like 12-year-old goes, general settings about, and they start going, and I'm like, how do you know this? And they just start rattling it off. Uh, you need to go here, you need to do why? They know it. They love it. They know it. Now, think about it. It ought to be problematic to us if we say we love Christ and we know nothing of the terminology of the New Testament because we're going to know what we love. And I'll tell you, one of the greatest problems in the Southern Baptist Convention are people that are illiterate in their theology. Did you know like 20 years ago, the greatest, con the, the greatest amount of converts to Mormonism came out of the Southern Baptist Church. Now, why is that? They were, they were people that were enamored with an experience of coming to church or being around something, but they couldn't know the truth. They didn't know the truth. They wouldn't be familiar enough with sound teaching to even recognize diverse teachings or strange teachings. So we got to know the truth. We got to be in the word of God and we have to know it because this is an important deal. Remember 2 Timothy chapter 2, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. So we see right off the bat that there's diverse and strange teachings. But another thing here, we see that there's a nourishment of God's grace contrasted with the starvation from the law. Now, before you go, what in the world are you talking about? Notice what he does. He says here in verse 9, don't be led away. And then he says, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not what? Benefited those devoted to them. This is sobering because he's showing them something. True nourishment is only found in the grace of Jesus. Religion cannot transform the heart. You see, if you subtract from Jesus or you add from Jesus, we need to be clear, you will not find nourishment. It will only lead to something that's of no benefit to you. Nothing. If you don't go the way that God has prescribed in Christ, it doesn't lead to blessing or healing. And I'm not talking about physical blessing or physical healing. I'm talking about soul blessing, soul prosperity. I'm talking about there's no nourishment in it. But if we go the way of legalism, if we adopt some form of rule keeping, guess what? You can observe those rules to your blue in the face. And guess what? At the end of the day, you get nowhere. I told you I was in the Atlanta airport, and I saw this lady, and I felt so bad for her. But, you know, like you come out of, like, the uh, international concourse, and if you're going anywhere in Atlanta, and you come back, and you're getting ready to go to baggage claim, there's these huge 
there's about, what, six or seven escalators going up to baggage claim. And you get off the trains, and this lady started going up one. It was coming down, and she was trying to walk up it. And it was awkward because she went like four or five steps, and it was like she was running. But guess what? She wasn't going anywhere. And everybody was sort of like, oh, you can't go up. You're running against it. You're not going to. And everybody, the whole place was just looking at her. And I think she just sort of doubled down and was like, you know what? I'm going for it. I think I can do it. Everyone's looking at me. And I think she just sort of, that's something I would do. I'd just get nervous and start trying to climb it. And she was going as hard as she could go, as hard as she could go. But she wasn't advancing one step. Friends, some of y'all are here today, and it's very possible as we go into this holy week, you're as religious as it comes. You're involved in every possible thing with the Bible and the things of God, but you've never understood the difference between grace and law-keeping. You remember we talked about the ladder. If there's a ladder on the stage that we're going to change lights out with, some people, they inherently think that the Bible is like a ladder. If I obey the law of God, I earn my way to God step by step by step. But the problem is, if you have an approach to Christ that is built on your own merit, it is of no benefit to you. It not only will make you weary, it will not only make you worn out, but it does not save. You are still condemned. You are still judged. So what is he doing here? He's saying, look, don't go back to Judaism. The nourishment for your souls is found in the grace of Jesus Christ and his grace because he's the risen king. He's the one who sustains you. He's the one who enables you. But if you adopt either a food dietary law or you adopt any type of works-based moralism that's somehow going to make you holier, you will find that it will never nourish your soul. He keeps going here. It's like religion can't transform the heart. This doesn't work this way. It, the, the grace of God is good for the heart. It's good for life. It's good for all of godliness. You remember in Colossians, therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And then listen to what he says. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism, and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. You see, these pursuits, he goes on in verse 23, he says, These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Do you realize the only thing that's going to break the power of sin in your life is the grace of Jesus Christ? It's not going to be religious commitment. It's not going to be in religious involvement. It's not going to be from adopting some serious rule-keeping 
motivated Scientology or Buddhism or some type of, you know, whatever you want to come up with. Islam, rigorous standards. It has no power to break the hold of sin. And what the author is wanting them to understand is, why would you go to something that cannot save? Why would you go to something that cannot nourish when you have the living God? He's the one who nourishes your soul. You know, the only way to approach God is through the cross of Christ. Now look at verse 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. And what is he doing here? We have an altar. I was looking back at some old notes of my father's, and I think he nails it. The altar is the symbol for the way man in the old covenant was to approach God. They could approach God only through the altar of sacrifice. But the blood of the sacrificed animal only covered their sin for one year, but did not remove their sin so as to grant them a relationship with God. And speaking to God's family, who are those who have trusted and received Christ into their hearts, the author says, we have an altar. We have a way to approach God. The way we approach God is only through Christ and his sacrifice for us on the cross. I love this. Do you see what he's doing here? He's saying, we have a way of access from which those who serve the tent. Who are those who serve the tent? Those who were indebted, those who were bound by the Judaistic law-keeping practices. And he says something there, by which those who, who serve the tent have no right to eat. Now, what is he speaking of here? He seems to be saying that because we have access through the blood of Christ, in this grace by which we stand, we can partake of all the spiritual blessings that are in Jesus Christ. We can be nourished by his grace, but those who put their allegiance to the tent, those who put their allegiance to the food laws, those who put their allegiance to law keeping, they are not permitted to eat. Because if it's of works, it's no longer of grace. This morning, how are you approaching God? Through law-keeping or through the grace of Jesus Christ? Are you approaching God this morning based on your work? Are you approaching God this morning based on his work? The only way we can approach God is through Jesus Christ. There's no right to eat when we go about it through works. When we approach God through the flesh, it leads to nothing. Believers are nourished by and through the grace of our Lord Jesus because he's the resurrection and the life. He sustains us, spiritually nourishes our lives by his grace. Now keep going here. What's interesting is for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. Now, now notice something here. He says, if you go by a law-based approach to the tabernacle, to the temple, whatever kind of system, and I'm adding the word temple. He doesn't say that. 
But what, what's happening is you have no right to eat. You have no right to partake. You have no right to be nourished because you're going against the very means by which God has called you to enter. But what does he say? What does this mean in verse 11? He seems to be speaking of something that happened on the day of atonement. Now hear me out. When we look at this, Leviticus 16 verse 27 says this, and the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire. Again, I refer back to my father here. I want you to hear this. This is good. He's referring specifically to the day of atonement when the high priest brought the blood of the bull and of the goat into the holy of holies. On the day of atonement, the bull was slain for the sins of the high priest and all his family, and the goat was slain for the people. Now, normally, when the sacrifices were brought by the people in ordinary peace offerings, the people were granted the privilege of eating some of it. They became partakers of the altar in that sense. In the daily sin offerings, only the priests were granted to partake of the meat. But on the Day of Atonement, neither the priest nor the people were allowed to partake of the sacrifice. The remains of the slain animals were taken outside the camp and were consumed entirely by fire. It was the part of the ceremony of the Day of Atonement that completed the symbolism of that day. Not only were the remains of the bull and the goat burned outside the camp, but a part of the day of atonement was when they took another goat and the high priest laid his hands on it, confessed the sins of the people, and they sent it off into the wilderness never to return. That, this pictured the entire removal of sin from the congregation, but also sent a message that under the law, nobody, not even the priest, could partake of such a complete removal of sin. But here it goes. But our Lord Jesus Christ fulfilled every bit of this by suffering without, apart from outside the gate. He bore our sin upon himself, completely removed the sins of us all. He took away the sins of all who trust in him outside the holy city, which represented Judaism and every religious system on earth. He was the true sin offering, completely forgiving our sin. And contrary to the weakness of the old covenant, we all may by faith partake of him. Amen. Do you realize that they couldn't partake? The body of the slain animals was taken outside the gate and was burned. But the author of Hebrews, through the power of the Holy Spirit, wants them to understand that Jesus Christ, however, fulfilled the day of atonement. And Jesus Christ fulfilled the symbolism. He fulfilled the, the shadow of the Old Testament. He is the substance, and he's the only way we can be nourished by a holy God. When we look at this, look at the last verse. We are full partakers in the benefits of the death of Christ, Christian. We've received the benefits of what Christ has done. Look at verse 13. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. 
For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. This is amazing. What, what, what is outside the camp? The outside the camp was the realm of shame, the pillar commentary says. It was the carcasses, it was the place of the carcasses being disposed. It was the place of criminals being executed. Jesus was cruci crucified outside the gate, bearing the disgrace he bore. He's calling Christians to say, look, therefore, in light of the fact that Christ was the one who was sacrificed outside the gate, therefore, in light of the fact that you were sanctified by his blood, in light of the fact that you were secured to an eternal city in verse 14, in light of the truths that you were nourished by his grace, let us now live with a completely different perspective in this world. I tell you, what a way to go into Holy Week. Is the death of Jesus Christ, has the death of Jesus Christ impacted the way you live as a Christian over this last week? Because when we reflect on Holy Week and we reflect on Jesus coming into Jerusalem, we are reminded that God in his wisdom, in his power, and in his grace was announcing to the world, not by works lest any man should boast, but only through the blood of the perfect Lamb of God. This morning, wouldn't it be a shame if you came in? You see, some people, they get to Holy Week and they put more emphasis on what they do for Lent. They, they won't eat chocolate. They won't have Diet Cokes. And it has nothing to do with anything other than to make themselves feel more spiritual for some. And they look at it like, you know what? If I could just prepare my life to come to Easter, if I could just prepare my life for the time of the Holy Week, and they misunderstand something. If you come in a way that God has not prescribed, it gives you no benefit. But those who come by grace through faith in Christ alone are nourished by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, this morning, we have an altar, we have a great high priest, and we have an enduring city that's coming. He tells them here, he says, look, I want you to bear the reproach. Here's people that were tempted to not be persecuted because they were tempted to go back to Judaism. And he says, look, if Jesus Christ was willing to bear the shame and the reproach outside the gate, just like criminals were. Now that he has sacrificed for you, he has sanctified you, he has secured you, now in return by his grace, offer up your body outside the gate, willing to take on the shame, the persecution, the laughter, whatever it may be. What a message to Christians tempted to throw in the towel when they get persecuted this morning. I got good news for you. As we close this service, let me remind you of what Holy Week is all about. Let me remind you that it's through this week of the passion that we are nourished by his grace, that we were forgiven by the sufferings that he endured for our sins. It's through this week that we are sanctified by his blood set apart unto him. And it's through this week that we are given hope of an eternal city that far outshines the city we're a part of now.
Amen. Would you bow your head? This morning as we close, Mike's going to come. Have you been nourished by his grace? Do you relate more to the Christians he's writing to where he tells them, he says, look, this is what's happened. You've been, Christ sacrificed himself for you. He sanctified you. He secured something for you. Or do you relate more to the law-keeping Jews who were stacking all of their hopes in a devotion to foods and a devotion to works? This morning, I pray that as you leave, I pray everybody here, their hope would be on Jesus Christ. Lord, I thank you for this truth, and I thank you, God, for your perfect sacrifice. Oh, Lord, I pray we would be in awe of your majesty and your power. Lord, thank you for what you've accomplished for us as our substitutionary lamb. Oh, Lord, help us to guard against error. Lord, help us to remember our leaders. Help us to remember that you do not change. Help us to remember to not swerve, to not go off course by strange and diverse teachings. Oh, God, I pray we would understand the reality that Christ is the substance, not the shadow, that he fulfills everything in the word of God. And I pray today, Lord, that every person in this room would come before you in an attitude by grace, in an attitude through faith, in an attitude of only in Christ. We thank you that that's where we find forgiveness of sins. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you'd stand with me. Charlie's going to be to my right this morning as we close. Just go before the Lord as Mike plays. Dwell on 